Too bad all this rain wasn't snow, huh? year was 31 B.C., 31 B.C., and a naval battle raged in the coastal waters off of the Greek city of Actium, a naval battle that would ultimately decide the fate of an empire. A coalition of forces from the Egyptian queen Cleopatra and her Roman lover, Mark Antony, were arrayed against the Roman by the name of Octavian and his forces. The ultimate winner of that naval battle would assume control of the empire. Antony had been Julius Caesar's top general. Octavian, his grandnephew, who at the age of 18, Julius Caesar adopted as his legal son and sole heir. Octavian was 18 when Julius Caesar was murdered. Mark Antony and Octavian together formed a coalition government upon the death of Julius Caesar That coalition government, in cooperation with the Roman Senate, ruled Rome. But both men were ambitious and ruthless. And it was only a matter of time before a violent clash would occur. The spark for that clash came when Mark Antony left his wife, who happened to be Octavian's sister to take up with the seductress queen of Egypt by the name of Cleopatra. The Roman Senate was very, very concerned about the growing influence of Cleopatra over Rome through Mark Antony. And Octavian fanned those flames of jealousy resulting in the Battle of Actium. Having carried the day in battle, Octavian consolidated his power and within just a few years, actually 27 B.C., he was named by the Roman Senate as the first emperor of Rome. Gone was the 500-year-old republic. It was now an empire in the hands of one man. The Senate bestowed on him the name Augustus, which means majestic or highly revered one. And thus we come to Caesar Augustus, whose name intersects the biblical record. Open your Bibles to Luke chapter 2, Luke chapter 2 and beginning in verse 1. Page 1020, if you're using a pew Bible. Caesar Augustus, or Octavian, was a brilliant administrator and politician. He allowed the conquered territories to 
retain a considerable measure of self-rule. They were allowed to maintain their own local customs, their own local religious convictions, even their own laws to the extent that they did not conflict with the greater laws of the Empire of Rome. He, in his reign, outlawed adultery, stimulated the arts, shored up the tax base, and launched a massive building project. His rule lasted until A.D. 14. He is credited with originating the Pax Romana, the Roman peace. And he is considered by many to be the father of the Roman Empire. During his reign, a baby was born in an obscure backwater village in the province of Judea. This child, according to the scriptures, was born a king. And his earthly kingdom would someday crush both sin and Satan and reduce all of its, the world's empires to a state of rubble and its leaders to grovel at his feet. But not yet. But not yet. For now, both the king and his subjects remain a small and despised minority on the pages of history. Follow along as I read for you, beginning in verse 1 of Luke chapter 2. Now it came about in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that a census be taken of all the inhabited earth. This was the first census taken while Quirinius was the governor of Syria. And all were proceeding to register for the census, everyone to his own city. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and family of David, in order to register along with Mary, who was engaged to him and was with child. And it came about that while they were there, the days were completed for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him in cloths and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. The very brief account that Luke gives us of the birth of the king. It's fascinating the, the context that he sets this narrative in, beginning with the reign of Caesar Augustus. And in fact, what I want to do this morning with us is just really reflect upon the contrast that Luke provides. The contrast between the earthly glory of Caesar and the lowly birth of Christ. It is a vivid contrast, and I hope this morning as we work through it together that you will hear this Christmas story in a new way, a new and a fresh way, and that it will give you something to meditate on in this week leading up to Christmas. I've arranged our thoughts for us really just around three words. They're there in your bulletin for you. They're very simple. That is providence, prophecy, and poverty. 
These three themes are brought out by Luke in just these few verses. Providence, prophecy, and poverty. We begin with prophecy, beginning in verse 1. Caesar Augustus, as I said, arranged and ordered the tax base of Rome in a way that was essential for the continued growth of the empire. He implemented a policy of regular censuses throughout the empire every 14 years. These censuses were conducted by local governmental authorities, and so they didn't necessarily all occur at exactly the same time. They were sometimes delayed by as much as a couple of years in terms of their implementation. But there was a regular process of census taking among the empire, throughout the empire. And the purpose of the census was to establish the tax base. It was from the census that they would determine who was responsible to pay the annual poll tax. There was a tax to be collected by every, from every adult once a year of one denarius, that is one day's wages. One day's wages were to be collected from the populace every year and funneled up through to the empire. The census was the basis of collecting these taxes. It's interesting here in the text because Luke introduces us in a very conscious way to the majesty and might of the Roman Empire here in all of its glory. Four times in these verses does he mention or refer to the census. Not only that, but he introduces us to a gentleman in verse 2 by the name of Quirinius. Quirinius was a Roman overlord. He was a governor, we're told here by Luke, verse 2, that he was the governor of Syria. In those days, the province of Syria actually included Judea, the homeland of the Jews. And so Quirinius ruled over Syria and Judea in this time. So he was a very powerful man. So we have Caesar Augustus, the first Roman emperor, and we have the governor, Quirinius, introduced here by Luke for us as a setting for the birth of the king. Notice as well that it says, verse 1, and it came about in those days, and that expression just carries the narrative forward from the earlier chapter, that a decree went out that a census be taken of all the inhabited earth. Think about that for a minute. In faraway Rome, the emperor issues a decree. He says there shall be a census. We need to know who are our subjects and where do they live. This will be taken throughout the Roman Empire. An empire, by the way, that this, by this time stretched from France in the west all the way in the east to Iran, a massive empire. It ringed the Mediterranean. Throughout the empire, we need to know who are our residents so we can collect taxes from them. And the way that we are going to go about accomplishing this is that every single one of them shall return to their own city of origin so that we can take a head count. All were proceeding, it says, verse 3, to register for the census everyone 
to his own city. Imagine this. A decree is issued in Washington that in order to enroll in the national health care system, every single male age 14 and above has to proceed back to the place of their birth that they might be registered for enrollment in the national health care insurance system. You must travel however far it takes. You must leave your occupation behind or carry it with you if you can so that you can go to the place of your family's birth because there the genealogical records are kept and there we will know who you are. You get an idea of the kind of power we're talking about. Raw power, majesty, glory. A man issues a decree and the world moves to carry it out. Under the providential hand of a sovereign God. A mere Galilean peasant travels to Bethlehem. At the decree of a Roman emperor. But the actions of Caesar. The actions of Caesar. Merely set in motion the divine plan. They are the means. By which God will bring redemption. To mankind. And establish. Messiah's kingdom. Raw power in the hand of a sovereign God who turns the earthly king like channels of water in whatever direction he desires. Earlier in chapter 1 and verse 52, in the Magnificat, Mary's poem She says of our God that he has brought down rulers from their thrones and he has exalted those who were humble. We haven't necessarily seen it all yet with our own eyes. But it's in process. It's begun. The most powerful man in the world being brought down that the humble might be exalted. All under the providence of God. Prophecy. Verse 4. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem because he was of the house and family of David in order to register. Joseph, a descendant of 
Israel's great king, David, who lived a thousand years before. Joseph sets out on a 90-mile journey, an arduous trip that will take him across the Jordan River and south to recross at Jericho and up over the Mount of Olives and down past the city of Jerusalem and off to the little village of Bethlehem, six miles away. little hamlet, a, a little wide spot in the road. He must go there because it's the place of David's birth, the text tells us. Bethlehem, the city of David. Now, it's interesting, by the way, that Luke calls this the city of David. He refers to it again that way down in verse 11. When he recounts the angelic announcement to the shepherds, Today in the city of David there has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. The reason it's interesting is because this is the only place in the Scripture where Bethlehem is ever called the city of David. If you search that expression, the city of David, in any kind of electronic concordance, you will find that it is a reference always and exclusively to Jerusalem. To Jerusalem. Zion, the city of David, his great capital city. Now, we know for sure that David was born in Bethlehem. The scriptures do tell us that. 1 Samuel chapter 20, verse 6, if you want to check it out on your own. But it's really interesting, I think, that Luke twice in this account refers to the little village as the city of David. And I think the significance of it lies in that it calls to one's mind the ancient prophecy that surrounds that little village, that little city. Micah chapter 5 and verse Two is the prophecy that comes to mind. 700 years before the prophet Micah spoke of this tiny and insignificant little place called Bethlehem. And he singled it out for great honor because it is there in this little teeny village would be born Messiah, the king of Israel. Micah chapter 5 and verse 2. But as for you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, and that is, by the way, to make sure that we identify it with the proper Bethlehem, not the Galilean Bethlehem, too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you, one will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. Fascinating prophecy. This fact, this reality that Messiah would be born in Bethlehem was well known by those who were conversant in the Jewish scriptures. This was a well-known fact. That's very, very clear to us. Because Matthew lets us know over in chapter 2 that the chief priests and the scribes 
when asked by Herod at the request of the Magi as to where the king of Israel would be born, where do we go to look for your king? Without hesitation, they quote Micah's prophecy. Now, they didn't bother to go look themselves, which in and of itself is a whole new sermon. But they knew where to look for Messiah. This was not an obscure and buried prophecy. This was one that was close at hand and readily accessible. It is in Bethlehem, Ephrathah, will be born the one whose goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. Earlier, chapter 1, by the way, of Luke's Gospel, verses 32 and 33, the angel Gabriel informed Mary that her son would sit on the throne of David and rule over Israel forever. Gabriel says to her, verse 32, chapter 1, He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. But in order for that prophecy to come true, Gabriel's prophecy to Mary, in order for it to come true, then Micah 5.2 has to come true, and the child must be born in Bethlehem. It is an essential prophecy. Essential because, as Jesus said in John 10 and verse 35, the Scriptures cannot be broken. The prophecies must come true. What a picture. What an amazing picture we have. The originator of the Pax Romana, the Roman peace, is instrumentally used by God in the bringing forth of the Prince of Peace. In fulfillment of a prophecy given 700 years before, a prophecy he had never heard or read. And yet, all must come true. The text tells us, verse 5, that Joseph took with him Mary, who was engaged to him and was with child. Mary was betrothed to Joseph. Betrothal was a legal arrangement in Israel of the day. In it, a young man and woman would become legally bound to one another. They would have all of the responsibilities of marriage and yet none of its privileges. It would be a time for the man to establish his home and get ready to receive his bride. It would be a time for her to prepare herself and it would also be a time for her virginity to be proven to make sure that there were no problems that would come up in the marriage. And so here we have Mary, it says, verse 5, who was engaged or literally betrothed to Joseph, and yet she is, look at the text, she's pregnant. 
She's with child. Matthew lets us know, as Micah read earlier, that the marriage, in this case, was not consummated until after the birth of her first son. And so they were legally married in every way, yet not consummating the union until the birth of her first son. She's accompanying Joseph on this journey to Bethlehem. Now, whether she and Joseph are conscious of the Micah prophecy or not, we don't know. It's not very hard to imagine that that would be true. Joseph being a righteous man and reading Mary's Magnificat and her reflections upon the great privilege that she has to bear Israel's king would not be at all hard to believe that they were very much aware of the fact that the child must be born in Bethlehem. So perhaps that influenced the decision for Mary to accompany Joseph on that long journey. Or maybe simply they wanted to get out of Nazareth. It's a bit inconvenient, you know, in the midst of a betrothal period for the betrothed woman to begin to show signs of being pregnant. It tends to create scandal in the community. It's not looked on favorably at all. And so maybe they were just tired of the wagging tongues and decided this is a good time to get out of Dodge. Perhaps. Maybe as well, Joseph, knowing that it's a long journey, down and back. Doesn't want to leave his wife alone to give birth to their very first son, the Messiah. And so together they, they decide that, you know what? I think it's a good idea, honey, if you come with me. Yeah, I think that would be a good idea. And so together the pair travel south to Bethlehem. And in the process, fulfill Micah's prophecy. Providence, turning the hand of the most powerful man in the world. An ancient prophecy that must come true. Leading to poverty in the birth of the king. Verse 6, and it came about. And it came about that while they were there, the days were completed for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son. And she wrapped him in cloths and and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. The typical Christmas image has, of course, Mary and Joseph arriving in Bethlehem on the night in which he gives birth. Perhaps you imagine them going door to door or, or at least up to the local Holiday Inn trying to find a place for the night. And the wicked and evil innkeeper turns them away, right? 
left with no other place to go, forced to take refuge in a barn, and there she gives birth to the child. But that's not the way it happened. That's not really the way it happened. Notice what Luke says. It came about that while they were there, Stop and think about that for a minute. It came about that while they were there, the days were completed for her to give birth. According to chapter 1 and verse 56, upon learning that she had become pregnant by the Holy Spirit of God and now carried in her womb the Messiah of Israel, Mary left Nazareth, to visit with her relative Elizabeth, who was also pregnant now in her old age. Mary traveled there and spent, according to the text, three months with Elizabeth. The final three months of Elizabeth's pregnancy. And then traveled back home to Nazareth. From there, she and Joseph would set out for Bethlehem. How long after she arrives back, we don't really know. We're not really sure. I assume they stayed together a while, maybe perhaps until she began to show, until it began to get really, really difficult to live. I mean, honestly, that story goes down a little hard, doesn't it? Mom and Dad, I'm pregnant. And I've never known a man. Really. Really. So perhaps they stayed around a while. But they left. There's no doubt that Joseph loved his wife. And that he was a righteous man. So it doesn't take a lot of speculation to assume that he wouldn't plan such a lengthy and difficult journey such that she would arrive in the last day of her pregnancy. That just doesn't make a lot of sense. You know, 90 miles to the hospital kind of thing, right? Not likely. Far more likely that they left Maybe the end of the second trimester. We don't know. But far more likely that they, they left with sufficient time to fulfill the responsibilities that they had to get to Bethlehem. As I said, notice the text. It says, now it came about while they were there. I think it kind of implied in that that they'd been there a while. They've been there a while. The second clarification I think that we need to make is to rescue the reputation of the poor unknown innkeeper. This poor fellow has suffered more at the hands of commentators. But a heartless, wicked man who would turn away this obviously pregnant woman on the night in which she's to give birth 
to the Son of God, no less. Surely there must be a place of judgment for him, right? (laughs) Ah, yes. Well, the Greek word translated in here is an interesting word. It's actually a very interesting word. It may refer to a public shelter. But it is used by Luke over in chapter 22 and verse 11. To refer to a guest room. To refer to a guest room. A guest room in a private residence. It's actually the place where they celebrated the Last Supper together. It's the same Greek word. In Luke chapter 10 and verse 34, in the story of the Good Samaritan, there is a different Greek word used that is translated in there. That was the place where the Good Samaritan took the wounded Jew, remember, and left him to be cared for by the innkeeper. It's a different Greek word. There, that in, that referred to in Luke 10 and verse 34, is clearly a reference to a public inn, which is called a caravansary. A caravansary. A caravansary was typically a four-sided structure, two stories high, with a central court. The bottom story all the way around would be a series of stables or places for one to to bed down their animals for the night after unloading the cargo in the public square. Up above the first floor stables would be a series of unfurnished rooms, literally just huts, in which the traveler could spend the night providing, of course, their own bedding and so forth. There would be an attendant at the caravansary who, for a fee, would provide food for the travelers and food and water for the animals. The slaves of the caravan would sleep in the open square and keep guard over the luggage. This would be a typical caravansary. Sometimes in hilly country, they were built up against the edge of a hill or a cliff And the stables would actually be cut into the side of the hill. They would be caves. Then surrounded by a wall. This is the inn referred to in Luke chapter 10 and verse 34. Where the good Samaritan brought the wounded Jew. It's quite likely, I would suspect, that given the crowds surging into Bethlehem. As the city of David to comply with the Roman requirement for a census, that all of the guest rooms in private quarters would quickly be filled up. So when Joseph arrives with Mary and he's looking for a place to stay, there are no guest rooms available. No room in the inn. Denied a place to stay by his own relatives. 
interestingly enough. John 1, verse 11, anybody? He came to his own, and his own received him not. No doubt by the time she's ready to give birth, Joseph is looking for a private place. This is the sort of thing that one doesn't normally do in public. Although our culture seems to have a fascination with such things, right? It's normally a private affair. And so it's not likely that Joseph wants to subject his, his wife to the indignities of giving birth to her very first son out in a public open place. And so there's no guest rooms available to him. Apparently the relatives won't move out so he can move in, at least for the night. And so he's left to find shelter somewhere and he seeks it among the animals. He looks for a stable. Ancient tradition tells us a cave. He was born in a cave. It's a private place for Mary to bring her first son into the world. Verse 7, she gave birth to her firstborn son. By the way, the first of many sons, as the Scripture makes quite clear. And a few daughters added in as well. She gave birth to her firstborn son. And she wrapped him in cloths, the text tells us. She wrapped him in cloths. Sparganon in the Greek, it means strips of cloth or bandages. Strips of cloth or bandages. She swaddled him which is a common practice for the people of that part of the world and in that day. They would swaddle a child by laying it diagonally across a piece of cloth or a blanket if they had one. And then they would fold the bottom corner up over the legs and the two sides in and kind of tuck it around. And then they would take long strips of cloth or rags and they would tie them to hold the package together from the navel down. The reason they did that is they believed that it helped the the limbs to grow straight and strong. Additionally, it would prevent the child's sharp fingernails from gouging its face or its eyes. So they swaddled the child. She wrapped him in cloths, strips of cloth, rags. And she laid him, it says... In a manger, literally a feed trough, a place from which the animals would eat. Maybe a ditch in the floor, perhaps cut into the side wall of the cave. That's where her son was laid once he had been wrapped up in rags. Because there was no room for them in any of the homes. It's fascinating because this is the sign, verse 12, that the angel gives to the shepherds. Verse 11, today in the city of David, he says, 
We have good news to you of a great joy which will be for all the people. Because there has been born for you a Savior who is Messiah, the Lord. And this will be the sign by which you will recognize him. You will find him tied up in rags and lying in a feed trough. Come again? I thought we were talking about Messiah, King of Israel and the world. We don't go to Jerusalem, David's capital city. We don't find him there. We don't, we don't find him wrapped in finery. Where's the purple? No, go to a cave. Look for a child wrapped up in rags. Laying in a manger. Laying in a fiend trough. That's the one. That's the one. I mean, the contrast couldn't be more vivid. Luke begins his account with... Caesar Augustus, the majestic one, the revered one, the one who was like unto God, who could command the world and they obey. And yet God's king is born in the most obscure place, wrapped in the robes of poverty. A more non-king-like beginning can hardly be imagined. You see, because God doesn't do it our way. God chooses the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. So that only with eyes of faith can one really see. Let me suggest, suggest for you this morning some application points from this story. These are a few things that have occurred to me this week as I've been thinking upon the, the narrative here and how Luke has put it together for us. The first is simply this. Jesus can be our representative because he's like us. He is just like us. The writer of the Hebrews, by the way, picks that point up and uses it a couple of times. I mean, someone born to wealth and privilege cannot identify with the masses. They don't experience the same things that you and I do. They don't have the same trials and tribulations and temptations of life. Jesus left the throne room of glory, Philippians tells us. He humbled himself, laying aside his divine prerogatives, and he assumed the form of a slave so that he might die in our place. Nothing illustrates the reality of this theological truth more than Luke's little narrative of his birth. Secondly, Jesus lived and died in obscurity. He was brought into the world in obscurity. He lived in obscurity. He died in obscurity. 
And yet the grave could not hold him. And on the third day he conquered death. So that by faith in him we too might have access to the very life of God. The obscure one accomplishes what no earthly potentate could ever accomplish. He delivers us from death. Third. He ascended back to the right hand of the Father. He ascended back to the right hand of the Father, and there he waits. He waits until the designated time when he will return in power and fury to crush the kingdoms of this world. To establish his earthly reign in the capital city of Jerusalem. And when he reigns, the Apostle Paul tells us in 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 12, we will reign with him. We will reign with him. Today we are the despised, we are the foolish, we are those of no account. The world looks on us and sees obscurity. Yet someday when our obscure king reigns visibly on this earth, we will reign with him. And in the meantime, we are called to a life of suffering and hardship. And when we seek to reign now in this life, we seek to enjoy divine privileges, the privileges of royalty in this life, we are frustrated. Because it's not what we're called to. How can the subjects of the king enjoy more than the king himself enjoyed? No slave rises above his master. That was Jesus' message. You want to follow me? Do you really want to follow me? Then lay it all aside. Come. Take up your cross and be my disciple. Someday he'll reign, beloved. And when he reigns, we will reign too. It's just not today. It's not today. Christmas is coming. Saturday. There's still time to recover. God in his providence has granted us a whole week to get our thoughts squared away, to disciple our own hearts, to make use of the opportunity to meditate upon the providence, the prophecy, and the poverty of Messiah. As we do so, I pray that God would grant us eyes of faith to see Christmas this year in a way that perhaps we haven't seen it in a very, very long time. May God richly bless you, my beloved. Let's pray.